Good morning. Glad to be here with all of you again. Buenos días, hermanos. Felicidades. Um, hope that you had a good Christmas, but talking to people, it seemed like it was the flu season, <laughs> and uh, it was kind of rough. Uh, but again, we did celebrate it. The greatest miracle on earth, God becoming man. And as we just sang, we indeed stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what the circumstances are. So, welcome you who are online. Sorry we miss you. Hope you can come and join us uh, soon. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for this year. Uh, many of us are hurting. Many of us are rejoicing. But we ask you, Lord, that today by your word, you will renew us, you will comfort us, you will encourage us, you help us keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and finisher of our faith, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Hopefully I'll remember how to use a clicker. Josh did a great job. <laughs> so our sermon today, we're going to continue what we've been doing in Exodus, but our response in the wilderness, nuestra respuesta en el desierto. And uh, I never had kids on my own. Uh, however, I did have the privilege through my grandchildren to have the wonderful experience of potty training. And uh, it was, I was blown away when my granddaughter came to me and she asked me to put a potty training video in YouTube. <laughs> and I went to YouTube, but there were just plenty of those things. I was blown away, you know. Uh, and, and then, of course, she knew exactly, you know, uh, what she wanted, you know. And potty training is something that uh, we all go through, you know. And thankfully, uh, even though it's not very easy, and sometimes we think uh, that the child got it, and then there's a big blowout. <laughs> uh, we all graduate from potty training. And the Christian life is a little bit like potty training. Uh, when we start, it's a little messy. <laughs> and we have our up and downs in the middle, but we all graduate from potty training. And uh, we have been going through Exodus. And uh, last week, uh, we uh, two weeks ago, we touched on Exodus 16, 16, but for what we have seen in Exodus, we have the feeling that the Israelites were in the early stages of potty training because uh, we couldn't miss the smell and we couldn't miss the sight either. <laughs> so as we saw in chapter 16, uh, we saw that, that God, they were, the Israelites were going through hard times, but it was precisely because God was testing them. So we may ask ourselves, why was God testing them? And the first thing that we need to keep in mind is that testing is part of the way how God deals with his children. And just to briefly illustrate this, or highlight this principle, Adam and Eve were tested, Abraham was tested, Jesus was tested, all his children are tested. 
And specifically, the Israelites, uh, we find in Deuteronomy uh, why they were being tested. You know what? And before that, <laughs> um, let's read the Exodus 17, 1 through 7, which is the scripture for today. If you find your Bibles or your telephone, let's go to Exodus 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camp at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And the Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And this is the word of the Lord. Okay. So um, just like we all go through potty training. In our text, we can see that there are three, three, two stages. There are those who were still needed to be potty trained. <laughs> there is somebody who was potty trained, and there is the dad's response to the potty training. Uh, in other words, we're going to see uh, the, somebody who has an immature response to God's test. Somebody who has a more mature response to God's test. And then God's response to his children in the middle of the test. So in verses 1 through 3 and verses 7, we see the immature response. So let me ask you a question. Just uh, If we are in the desert and we have no water for us to drink. Is it legitimate for us to be concerned? Yeah. Yeah. Now let's think that we are part of the new non-Hebrew people who went out with Israel out of Egypt. Um, we have seen God do wonderful things in Egypt. We have seen God part the Red Sea. We have seen him come with us in the pillar of cloud during the day and the pillar of fire by night. 
would it be legitimate for us under those circumstances to doubt God's presence and God's provision for us? No. It would not be. So we see, as I mentioned before, that God's test is part of our lives. That's the way how God deals with us. And in Deuteronomy, now we can get there, um, chapter 8, verses 2 and 16, we read, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And verse 16, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. So the testing is for God to humble us, to reveal what's in your heart, and to do good to us. And when we go in through tests, it is very easy to get the part you know, of humbling and the testing of the heart. But many of us, most of the time, we forget that testing is also to do us good. The Israelites reveal what was in their heart. It revealed their unbelieving and immature heart. They have seen God move among them. They have seen him perform great miracles. And they still doubt that God was faithful, that he will provide for them, that he was going to be with them and for them. They chose to believe the lie that God did not have their best interest in mind. Does that sound familiar? That is exactly what Adam and Eve did. And in this passage, you know, we see how the Israelites still choose to believe that God did not have their best interest in mind. That God was not for them and that God was not with them. And when they did that, they grumbled. And then, rather than with humble hearts, going to him and asking him for what they needed, they tested God by demanding of him to satisfy their desires. And most of us may not have come to a point in which we have outwardly and blatantly tested God in our lives. However, all of us have grumbled. What is the definition of grumbling? Just to make sure <laughs> that we're in the same page. The Oxford Dictionary says that grumbling is to complain with a bad temper fashion. How many of us are guilty of that? I am. I am very guilty of that. So if that is grumbling, what is the opposite of grumbling? To be happy, to compliment, to rejoice. So in light of that, 
What did the Israelites and us have failed to do when we grumble? We have failed to rejoice and we have failed to praise God in the midst of our trials. So let's see what the scripture has to say about rejoicing in the midst of the trials. And let's go to 1 Peter 1, 3 to 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfaded, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's Peter. <laughs> who knows very well what it means to be tested after he denied Jesus three times, telling us that the purpose of tests is for the glory of God. And he's also telling us that as we look at what God has done for us and as we rejoice in the midst of our trials, that is going to help us to pass the test. So the Israelites grumble because they forgot what God had done for them. They forgot that God was with them. They forgot that he had their best interest in mind. So we grumble when we forget that we have been saved by grace. That we have been saved through a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When we forget that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. When we forget that no matter how hard the tests are, that the same power that brought Jesus from the dead is going to keep us and preserve us until the end. And if that was not enough, when we failed the test, he, our faith, still at the end, going to be to the praise and honor and glory of Jesus when he comes back. I mean, that's amazing. Uh, if, if we cannot rejoice in that, I mean, those are plenty of things for us to keep our eyes fixed on and rejoice and give thanks to God in the midst of our trials. Are you being tested right now? How are you responding to that test? What is God exposing in your heart?
And during this season, it is rough. Any normal test is even harder. Losing your job, hearing bad news about your health, breaking up in a relationship, it is rough. But you know what? God loves you. He loves us. And that test is to do you good. God loves us so much that he's not going to allow us to stay in the same level of maturity. He is going to change us into the image of Jesus. God loves us so much that he is going to expose our hearts so that we can repent, come to him, and receive the mercy and the grace and the strength to be changed into the image of Jesus. When I was a brand new believer, a freshman in college, um, I was in a swimming practice. And as usual, I was working very hard and pushing hard. But my times were not reflecting it. So my coach comes and having my best interest in mind, since my times were not what they should be, he thought I was slacking. Uh, he was getting on my case. Uh, he was pushing me hard, and he was telling me to push harder. I lost it. In the middle of the swimming pool, I yelled at him. I got my head under the water, and they just scream with all I got. I was ticked off of my coach, even though he had my best interest in mind. And my loving God caused that interaction to happen to expose the anger in my heart that he needed to get rid of. He allowed that to happen. He allowed the coach to think that I was slacking so that he can work in me something better than just winning a race to become more like Jesus. Remember, everything, everything that comes our way comes from his loving, sovereign, and wise hand. And he has our best interest in mind. And our best interest is for us to be transformed into his image and to know him. And some of us, perhaps, were not even going to be here this morning. You didn't want to come. Maybe online you did not want to turn the computer on. By God's grace, you're here. You're watching online. You're still hurting. 
you have a lot of pain in your heart. You're angry. You're ready to stone the Moses in your life. Do you have grumble? Do you have doubted God? Do you have questioned God? Perhaps you may have even screamed, Where are you, God? Or perhaps you have gone as far as the Israelites did to test God in your heart by asking him and telling him, if you're God, then you fill in the blank. This is not a good place to be. It is extremely painful. But this is a time that God is going to use to bring you to your knees and to get in his word. Your pillow is going to be drowned with your tears. But you will experience his embrace in the midst of your pain, of your doubts, and of your questions. Why can I say this? Because I've been there. And I have experienced God's work in my life. Perhaps you're here today and listening online and you're not a believer. This pain that you're experiencing or the pain that your believing friend is experiencing, in fact, is just reinforcing and strengthening your own belief in God. You're saying, <laughs> if there is a God, why is he allowing all this pain in the world, in my life? And of all people, in my friend's lives that believes in him. And let me read you a quote that I read in a previous uh, sermon, uh, but applies today. And perhaps some of you uh, did not listen to it, but um, it comes from the book Truth Matters by Andreas Kostenberger and Daryl Bach. Um, here we go. It's kind of long, so hang in there with me. Admittedly, these are fair questions, deserving of much more than pat answers. But for our purposes right now, let's drill a bit deeper in what the Bart Ehrmans of this world are saying and ask ourselves. What's at the bottom of this, his statement? What are they really saying when they call God out for what he's doing? When they challenge what they perceive to be the way God operates? Here it is. God, you cannot be good. You shouldn't do it like this. You should know better. If you're real, and that's a big if, you are seriously not handling things right. Well, if what God is doing is wrong, how do we know that? How can we judge his actions to be cruel and immoral? What standard do we use to measure the rightness or wrongness of his behavior or of anyone's behavior? If there is no God, if there is no word, no truth, then what makes someone who busts out your windshield 
any more wrong than if they wash your car or buy you a tank of gas. Without something or someone somewhere in the universe to frame our existence in such a way that certain actions are good and others are evil, on what grounds do we decide which is which? And as the late pastor, Tim Keller, put it, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can be one. Again, we see lurking within this supposed hard-nosed skepticism an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If our minds can't plumb the depth of the universe for good answers to suffering, well, then there can't be any. This is blind faith of a high order. Anyone is welcome in this church, no matter how many doubts and questions you may have. And we will love to talk to you when you think that the time is right and hear your questions, hear your struggles, and hopefully give you a little help. If you're a believer, where are you right now? Where do we need to renew our minds? Are we believing that he does not have our best interest in mind? Do we think that he doesn't have, that he's not with us in the midst of our pain and suffering, that he can care less where we are? And God wants to remind us today that his grace is sufficient for us. When we are weak, he is strong. And precisely because His grace is more than enough, we can rest on the fact that even if we fail the test, we are going to grow and we're going to become more mature. And in the broken, imperfect Moses, we're going to see how we can grow in our faith and how we can have a more mature response when we are in the middle of testing. So, a more mature response, una respuesta más madura. So Moses, just as the Israelites, he was experiencing potentially death. I mean, he didn't have any more water than the Israelites did. But in addition to that, they were getting ready to stone him. So Moses' response is quite different. He did not respond like he did back in Exodus 5, that he came complaining to God, and he told God, why have you done evil to your people? And then he told him, <laughs> You have not delivered your people at all. And then we see him responding totally different. 
rather than grumbling and complaining to God, he comes to him and asks him for help. Not to test him, but depending on him. He came to him to pour out his heart to him. Exodus 33:11 tells us that God talked with Moses as a friend, a person talks to a friend. And in verses 4 and 6, we're going to see a beautiful example of this interaction. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Here we see Moses coming to God as he would come to a friend. He was pouring out his heart to him. And how does God interact with him? In love, in grace, in encouragement. So God hears Moses' fear and concern. He does not dismiss him. So he sends him to Horeb. And Horeb is the place where God showed up to him for the first time in the burning bush. Horeb is a familiar place that communicates to Moses his grace, his presence, and his promises. And then God asked Moses to take the staff with him. And the staff is what he used to show the people of Israel and to show Pharaoh that God was with him. So God is telling Moses, in other words, hey, I am with you. As I was with you then, I am with you now. I have chosen you. I have called you by name. You are my chosen instrument. This is a very personal, caring, encouraging conversation. I mean, this is just like a person, in this case God, coming to a friend and he's telling him, hey, everything is going to be all right. I got your back. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And this is a perfect example of how we grow in faith. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul tells us, and we all, with unveiled faith, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
So we are changed when we behold the glory of God. Moses changed because he spent time with God face to face. And he became his friend. And then in verse 6, in the middle of God's response to Moses, we're going to see an amazing thing that leads us to our last point. God's response to us in the middle of testing. La respuesta de Dios en medio de nuestras pruebas. In verse 6, we find the reason why Moses was able to talk with God face to face and why you and I can know God. And one day, one amazing day, we're going to be able to see him face to face. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock and Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. God himself was standing on the rock. We don't know how that looked like, but he was there, and Moses was commanded to strike the rock in order for the people to be saved and to drink the water and not die of thirst. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 4 and 6, what was going on at that time. Verse 4, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. God was on the rock because the rock was symbolically Christ. And the Israelites did a very great evil when they tested God. Let's listen to what one commentator says. People often put God to the test this way. We want him to prove himself to us. So instead of starting with God and evaluating our experience from his point of view, we start with our own circumstances and judge him on that basis. When things go wrong, when life does not meet our expectations, we're quick to fix the blame squarely on his shoulders and to demand some kind of explanation. C.S. Lewis observed, The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench 
and God in the dark. That's what every one of us does. That's what anyone does when we put God to the test. We are putting God on trial. And this is a grievous sin that deserves punishment. So we ask ourselves, did God just ignore what the Israelites did and he just turned a blind eye and, and looked the other way? No, he did not. He is just. Therefore, he will never ignore sin. He will never turn a blind eye to sin. What happened? What happened is that God judged not the guilty party. He received on himself the punishment that they deserved. When Moses struck that rock, God was acting on behalf of God and bringing the judgment that the people deserve on the rock. The rock, God, Jesus, was receiving the punishment that the guilty people deserve. And this is the gospel. Just like the people were safe by the rock being struck, and they were spared from God's judgment, the same way his people are saved and are spared from God's judgment when God struck Jesus, the rock on the cross, on our behalf. And if that was not enough to shatter any doubt that God is among us, he became one of us, Emmanuel, in the person of Jesus. He was born in a manger. He had to be potty trained. He experienced all the pains and heartaches that you and I experience, but yet without sin. He lost his adopted father when he was young. He was rejected by his brothers. He was despised. He was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. He was mocked. And ultimately, he was unjustly hanged on the cross. The God of the universe experienced all these things and then some so that you and I can know him, reflect him, and represent him in this broken and hurting world. So dear brothers and sisters, when you are being tested, 
when you attempted to grumble, to test God, look to the rock. Look to the one who is the fountain of life. And if there's anyone who does not have a relationship with him, all that you need to do is to admit, recognize your sin, recognize your need of living water, and come to him who is the true living water in repentance and surrender, and you will be safe. And for his children, you will be comforted. You will experience his grace and his embrace because he is for you, not against you. Let's pray. Father, we do come into your presence and sing, The Lord lives. And blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. Our God, earnestly we seek you. Our soul thirsts for you. Our flesh longs for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen.